0: This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voices of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voices of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash V-O-S-D. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash V-O-S-D.
1: Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 KOGO. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. I am joined, as always, by managing editor Andrew Keats. Scott, how you doing, pal? Pretty well, thank you. And fellow managing editor Andrea Lopez Villafaña. What's up, Lopez? Hello. Coming up on this show this week, the masks are off, at least for some people in some places, but not all. I don't know. We'll talk about this week in the pandemic. And what is going on in schools, what is still the same, and what has changed? We're almost through this again, right? I don't know. The UT revealed a curious allegation against former San Diego City Councilwoman Barbara Bree by the San Diego City Attorney's Office. We'll try to do some sense-making about what that story concerns. And finally, everyone is talking about how expensive housing is in San Diego right now. We're going to catch up on some new reports about affordability and how much of the problem investors are causing or not causing. That's all coming up. Stay with us. So have you guys gotten used to not
2: wearing masks in the office, going up the elevator and stuff? Or no. No. <laughs> I, anytime I don't have a mask on, in a situation that where I previously would I expected to be I expect to be yelled at by somebody yeah yeah I'm I not. just
3: feel weird if I'm like in the elevator with someone else or like the security guards still wear their masks so then I feel weird smiling at them yeah <laughs> and they're not
1: I kind of have had a policy that if like a worker has to wear a mask where I'm going, that I should. Yeah. But I'm also just like really tired of that whole thing where you go to a restaurant and there's a sign that says like, you must wear your mask on your way to the table and on your way to the bathroom. But when you're sitting there bathing in every each other's aerosols, that's when
2: you can have it off. Right. It's, I mean, it's kind of like what we mentioned back during the first year of the pandemic where like. The easiest time was the first couple of months, where the number of things you could do were none.
1: Yeah, you couldn't even go to the beach. Remember that? So there,
2: there was just no discretion in the matter. It was just like, well, yeah, can't I can't do anything. Yeah. So if there's a question about whether you can do it, it's easy
3: enough to do answer it because like, like we
1: no.
2: didn't drive for like, my, <laughs> my car didn't move
1: for like three
3: months. It was wild, yeah. like filled with spider webs. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but now we, we're in this situation where it's like you know, ask is still around. They're still hanging by my door. Should I still grab them every time I leave the house? I guess so. But where do I wear them? It doesn't matter.
3: That's the worst part because I was so used to wearing a mask. I like had extra ones in my car. Mm -hmm. I always carried like three in my purse. Mm -hmm. I even had a little chain where like the mask I was wearing that day would hang from my neck. So, you know, I wouldn't forget it. But then we didn't have to wear masks. So kind of got rid of some of them. And I ran out of the disposable ones. And then we had to wear a mask again. And I was constantly like, crap, I don't have any more in my car. Mm-hmm. I don't have one around my neck. And then I had to like buy one. And- yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: the, uh, the mask, indoor mask requirement for the state expired. Now, we are one of the few counties, or not one of the few, one of the counties that doesn't have its own mask mandate for indoors. So LA still has to indoors. Though so it sounds like they're... On their way to removing it right and so i think this again gets to a a a lesser told story about san diego county which is how ready the county is to be done with this stuff like they have they unanimously voted to end mask mandates in in schools now they can't do that themselves because it's a state uh situation right now and they've and they in
2: that case the the they there is Three Democrats, yeah. Three Democrats is not Re- a, yeah, not not something easily dismissed as retrograde, reactionary conservatives.
1: Yeah, they have steadfastly avoided a vaccine mandate here, unlike uh, unlike other San Francisco, L.A. those those counties. I mean, for like indoor dining, right? To, yeah. And yeah. yeah, and their employees, uh, they they had one for their employees, but mm-hmm. the I just think there it's. It's a kind of remarkable and at some point needs to be noted just how this county approached this later stage of the pandemic and how present, like Nathan Fletcher and they were for so many months,
2: and then how done with it they were. Yeah, yeah they went from you know, I think we talked about this on the show recently, mm-hmm. the 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 daily and then weekly updates receded to never updates. Yeah. <laughs> and like, even when things were ramping up, it was like, are we going to hear from anybody soon yeah. about whether things are going to change? And we never did. And it just, they were just like, no, they're like, get a vaccine. Yeah. Good luck. We're going to be cool. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So we are through it. The numbers are great. I mean, sorry, there's still several people, many people, too many in the hospital, but the numbers are going down rapidly. The direction is the great. The direction is great. Uh, and Seems like Omicron is headed toward the the rear view mirror, but schools still have an indoor mask mandate. Now they did in the San Diego Unified District remove the outdoor mask mandate. My daughter was stoked about that, but she had been pushing along with her classmates. I love this story. She was very frustrated because they could not play with other classes at recess, and she has friends in other classes. And she was very mad about this for many months. And finally, we started convincing her like you need to write a letter. You need to get your get going on you know activism. Maybe hold a sign or something. And she's like, "I'm not going to do that. What good is that?" And I was like, "Give her whole speech about <laughs> about the public square and letting yourself be heard." Oh, she must have hated that. Oh, she hates. It. <laughs> I have. I am so surprised how hostile my kids are to my explaining things. I'm surprised that you're surprised. By are that. you? Yeah. I just thought they would love every insight I could give them and they want nothing of it.
2: That is a strange thing for you to have thought. But in any case, it's fine. I, lo- I do like the old wisdom of like, write a letter. Yeah. so she Write a letter. They got on it
1: uh, and the principal agreed that the classes can now intermingle. It is joy. It is felt. Mm-hmm. We'll see how the masks go. They, they. Uh, I used to say all the time on the show and others that like the, that my kids were cool with masks. Yeah, they're done. They, okay. they're so not excited about masks. Or when we tell them like, don't forget your mask. They go ah. Yeah,
2: <laughs> Ruby Lewis needs to uh, adopt the the journalistic tick. She can put in on her like, I don't know, high school application resume or something. Whatever, whatever the next thing she needs to apply to, that. She appealed the school to remove its outdoor mask mandate. Yeah. And after that, they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not necessarily saying <laughs> there was a causal that there was effect. a causal relationship there. You're simply stating the order of events. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: All right, Sunday morning, we were talking a lot about a story that appeared in the UT by Jeff McDonald, Union Tribune, that caught all of our attention and was just seemed very hard to piece together what was what was really happening. So it said, while San Diego City Attorney Mara Elliott considers whether to join a whistleblower lawsuit filed by a businessman married to former city council member Barbara Bree. One of Elliott's senior deputies has decided that Bree should be investigated criminally. It's not often that you hear about criminal investigations of
2: council members or former council members. So much less a former council member, former mayoral candidate, who is currently running for office. Right. Who's running for county assessor as we sit here right now. Right. So that was the The whole story though was a
1: little bit hard for us to put together about what was exactly happening until another story appeared the next day that brought a lot more context and we were able to put it together like a puzzle
2: yes basically the the lawsuit that is referenced in that paragraph you just read there was a story specifically on that lawsuit, which made it much much easier to understand
1: what was right that. so and that w- was about a company in particular called. Deckard Technologies that we have reported on before. So we have some context on all this. Yeah. So let's see if we can put this together, shall we?
3: Can I say, though, like, I love working here. (laughs) And one of my favorite things about working here is where there's plenty, right? I love you guys. But like, there's things that I would have had to kind of figure out on my own. Uh (laughs) But here it's like, you guys are just like so full of knowledge and secrets. And I just think of that Mean Girls quote where she says, um, that's why her hair's so big. It's full of secrets. <laughs> that's how I feel about you guys because you did such a great job explaining. So, wow. okay, back Thank to your you. story, but I just wanted to give that shout out.
1: Well, that raises the expectations. So we better deliver.
2: <laughs> or just walk away. What? Just
1: stop there.
2: <laughs> End of podcast. And I mean forever. Yeah. It's a <laughs> high point.
1: All right. So... Let's let's dial back a little bit, yeah, and try to understand what this company is, and then its relationship to Barbara Breeze. So, you found out about this
2: company, I guess, about a year ago, about this time a year ago. Yeah. And what does it do? It's it's like a data scraping big you know, big data company that had a it was selling to the city the idea that its technology could be used to potentially help police Airbnb that you could use its Suite of products to identify places that were operating as short term vacation rentals without uh paying taxes or 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 uh, permits right, so if you passed a regulation
1: yeah. limiting the number of short term vacation rentals or limiting them to certain places, you could tell
2: if somebody was violating that rule, yeah, now the reason i this came across in any way was that and I should say the San Diego Reader actually had the, the very first scoop on this, was that th- that company had hired a lobbyist and was trying to lobby the city to hire it. And it appeared on a uh, economic interest disclosure from Barbara Bree for her last year in office that she was paid like over $100,000 as a consultant for this company. Which raised some questions because she was making decisions about
1: regulating vacation rentals which might lead to a contract for this company. And thus you asked her whether there was a conflict there and whether there was something that she needed to recuse herself from that she did not.
2: Yeah. And so what we learned at the time that she told me and the the CEO of this company told me was that there was essentially a paperwork error on her Form 700 that she had failed to check a box indicating that this was... an this was income that came from her husband not her and that she actually personally had never had any relationship with this company at all and that had she managed to check that box which you know there's a a box on your form 7 that just says this is my spouse's income that had she done that would have been clear um but the as the ceo of the company told me we never had any relationship with barbara she was never a consultant with us and barbara told me yeah i never had anything to do with that company at, at all Neil invested in that, her husband, Neil Centuria, uh, invested in that company and was its CEO CEO for a period. So that was the relationship between her and the company. And that was the reason that it didn't, uh, you know, as far as we knew at the time, rise to any sort of level about a conflict of interest with the city.
1: Okay. Armed with that
2: knowledge, then we... So we put We set that aside. It was like, okay, it seems like this... Interesting. Weird thing that that happened, that you didn't check that box, but doesn't seem like there's much else here. Right. So then this
1: story about her being criminally investigated or referred for criminal investigation didn't really resonate. But you suspected it might have something to do with this company. Because in that
2: story, and the only reason I had any suspicion about that was because in that story, her—the the story that published first, that was uh, about this criminal referral... Her lawyer says to Jeff McDonald, all that happened here is that she forgot to check a box for her spouse's income on her form 700. And I thought, aha, I've heard that before. Yes. That seems like it's probably related to the very similar instance that she described that that same box checking failure a year ago.
1: But it turns out she wasn't being investigated or referred for investigation for that disclosure problem doesn't seem to be the case or for a conflict problem but for another kind of interesting story so the ut on monday finally ran a a bigger story about this lawsuit that was referenced and that lawsuit is about what this company has discovered about homes across california and so describe that
2: real quick they use that technology to do something different than vacation rentals it was a Essentially, they scraped publicly available information and found companies that own and lease homes that had not gotten proper permits for renovations that increased the value of a home and therefore defraud, essentially, as the the lawsuit alleges, basically defrauded cities across the state out of fee revenue for those permits that they didn't get that those cities were entitled to and property tax revenue that would have accrued to the city had these renovations been registered and therefore the property value of the pro- the value of the properties increased through their assessments.
1: Okay, so and then as you read that story it, it takes a turn toward the city attorney. It says like would the city attorney join these lawsuits for San Diego properties that might be affected by this. They said they found about 80 of those properties there. And so would it be something that the city attorney would get involved in? And then there was this kind of intense back and forth in the story about Barbara Bree, where it says, this is the city attorney's spokeswoman, Leslie Branscombe. She says, Quote, if there was evidence of fraud against the city in August of 2020, then Brie, as a city member of the city council, had a fiduciary responsibility to bring it to the attention of the mayor, city attorney, or city auditor. Instead, something else happened. So this is where the story takes yet another interesting turn, which is that her husband created a company to use this data to sue the The owner of all these homes uh, through that company. So he's an investor. At, as a, He's a VC in the van. Remember that show? Yes, yes, yes. The VC in the van. This, this, he got in a van with a couple of other dudes, drove around town and looked at entrepreneurs and their ideas, and they considered whether to invest in those ideas. And they were in the van. It was
2: VCs in a van. This guy, this, he's a VC in the van. <laughs> we did... Discuss the oddity that the 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 selling point of this premise was was the the means of transportation yeah. between meetings. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, bit, a bit of a str- oddity, but anyway, go ahead. So, uh, one of his entrepreneurial pursuits
1: apparently was to create a shell company to do these lawsuits. Yes, or at least that's how that, the term that the the city attorney used. And so she says, ongoing. Instead, a shell company used the alleged information to file a money making lawsuit which was hidden for the, from the public for 16 months. If Centuria's lawsuit is successful, Brie and Centuria, a married couple, stand to benefit. Now, the attorney for Brie and Centuria called that nonsense because Barbara Brie has no interest in this company.
3: Now, I don't because doubt they, that
1: because her husband forms companies all the time. Like yeah. He calls himself a serial entrepreneur. Probably has formed like 100 companies, if
2: not more yeah and and they they basically say that they that they have a prenuptial agreement that walls off their finances between each other right so now the the weird thing that what's going on with the city attorney's office here is they're pretty dismissive of the lawsuit. They said we have
1: not found any homes in San Diego that would fit this lawsuit,
2: but also that Barbara Bree had a fiduciary duty. To tell the city if it was being harmed, and which and- they don't think it was right? I, I, the, the city attorney here is is being quite forthright with their thoughts, like, right? Like, like, uh,
3: and and that- those, are,
2: those are stinging quotes about a former city council member that you don't issue casually.
1: And then a referral for a criminal investigation, which again, that's how this all fits together finally, like as we read all these stories, like, oh, okay, the city attorney has
2: referred this matter to criminal investigators, which is presumably derives not from any sort of Form 700 conflict of interest violation, a checkbox, but but rather that. She had a fiduciary duty when she learned of the contents of this lawsuit to alert someone at the city, and yet is not a very big deal that we don't want to get involved. But in. that at the same time that they don't they don't care to join the lawsuit because they don't think that anyone was harmed.
3: <laughs> you can't hear it, but I'm tilting my head and I'm <laughs> very confused trying to process all this.
2: Yeah. Well, so, uh, and and what is not said here is, that is is like. She's also running for a job right now Yes, that is squarely at the center of all of these issues because the county assessor is in a position to, uh, I mean, part of the fraud that they allege is over the assessed value of property. Right. That is the job of the county assessor. Yeah. So one of the
1: hottest races in the county, I guess, I feel weird saying this, is for county assessor. Uh Bree is running for that. She has incredible name ID now. The support of the Democratic Party after they trashed her race for mayor, and she's running against Jordan Marks, who has raised a ton of money, has a big network. He's a Republican, but he's been in the office already. And so there's just yeah. This on the one hand there's that the assessed value issue, but also that this if this is an issue of you know uh, something that is conflicted for her the the assessor has vast troves of data <laughs> about homes and such and enforcement of property tax issues and such that this might be an issue i don't know it's
2: wild yeah it's i it it, it would be easy to dismiss if it was all speculative but you actually have the city attorney opining in the press on the matter <laughs> that's that's what elevates it well, to something that i'm even comfortable talking about right like the the city right. attorney's office isn't saying, no, 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 we didn't do that. No. But one thing to keep in mind is
1: they don't like each other. Well, that's true. And they haven't for several years now, right?
3: Yeah. But in the first story, it says they're considering being a part of the lawsuit or what did it say? Yeah. While something... Yes,
1: they've been... Yes, they're considering. While San Diego City Attorney Mara Elliott considers whether to join a lawsuit... Filed by a businessman married to former city council member Barbara Bree, one of Elliot's senior deputies, decided Bree should be investigated criminally. So they are considering it, according
2: to this. And, both then the, the story of the day after teach, treats it, it as much more of a decided issue that they're not going to join the lawsuit. Yeah. So, so there's that. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well the news was a buzz this week with a lot of headlines and discussion about how much it costs to live here and how few people can actually make it work. It is expensive to live here. We're working right now on a long-term project if any of you have anything to contribute to it about cost of living in San Diego. Obviously, housing is up there. Uh Andrea, you were talking you kind of blew our minds the other day that just to make things work, uh, when you, just a few months ago, you were you were having to drive DoorDash, right? Yeah,
3: I was driving DoorDash and I had applied for Instacart and then I was thinking Uber too, but you need to have like your license for a year and I still had it, so. Oh, oh really? <laughs> yeah.
1: There was a study that came out that said that San Diego was now the most expensive or most difficult place to live, the least affordable place to live Least and, affordable, and that that's not just that we have high home prices because there are places with higher home prices, but it's that
2: our incomes didn't keep pace, right? Yeah, I mean, basically, the, these sorts of studies come out every couple months. Uh, we are always in um, among the least affordable from time to time, based on how somebody calculates it or the uh, a given periods of data. We reach number one, and whenever we reach number one, you get a, a round of media coverage about about it. But basically, the way these indexes work, they take the median income, they take the median home price over a period. They presume that people can afford to pay thirty percent of their income on housing. Combine those two metrics, and you figure out how many people can afford the median-priced home, and the. Lower the number, the higher you rank. We reached, we were the least affordable in that time. But to your point, Scott, yes. So, uh, just to make one example to to bring it home, we are the least affordable metro area according to this most recent study. Yeah, this was by Ojo
1: Labs. Uh, so they did a, a ratio. They they said the median home price in San Diego climbed fourteen point three percent in January to seven hundred sixty four thousand dollars, and then they compared that to income and said it's a ratio of homes sold to medium household income of 8.1. And San Francisco, when you do that same calculation, saw an increase in home prices, but uh, the income ratio had fallen to 7.9. So
2: And so those income ratios aren't going to make any sense to anybody. So I went and pulled the numbers from the Federal Reserve of St. Louis. And I think this explains it is so our home, our median home price, according to this this study, is seven hundred sixty four thousand dollars. Very expensive. Obviously, not many people can afford that. San Francisco's is a million. Mm-hmm. Uh, what? So how did we rate more more poorly than they do when theirs is is you know two hundred fifty thousand dollars more? Because the median home pr- or the median income in San Francisco is one hundred twenty one thousand dollars, and the median income in San Diego is eighty seven thousand dollars. Boom. So we have we it's it's not just a cost of homes problem though it is that. It's also a wage problem, which we have the the double whammy of very expensive homes and wages that don't compare to places like San Francisco or Boston or New York. Mm.
1: This is no surprise to anyone who's been to any kind of barbecue lately or any social event of any kind. Is there anything that people talk about more than just how shocked they are about their own home's value, or how hard it is to buy. You can't buy a home right now. By the way, if you're selling your home, on, if you're selling your home, you used to be able to do it on contingency, where you'd buy a new home, you know, ask them to sell you the house, but wait for you to sell your own house before it all completes. Right now, they just laugh at you. They're like, no, we'll take cash from somebody else. Thank you. Good luck with your home sale. Right. I mean, it is so intense out there. And the numbers are just bananas. Like, it's really hard. Uh, it's kind of like, it feels to me like there was a storm that came with the pandemic. And whatever you had before the storm is what you have. <laughs> and if you didn't have a home, you, you're not getting
2: one. And if you did, that's what you got and i mean the the i mean it's it's a it's a helpless it's a helpless situation because up and down the housing scale it's a problem people who want to buy second you know move up buyers are priced out of that market all the way down to people who are worried about becoming homeless because they are at the the you know, the bottom of the rental market that they can't afford anymore. And those people often become become homeless and then every stop in between. So if if housing is a ladder at every single rung right now, people are slipping.
1: So the question is comes down to like, what are we what's happening? Right. Is this and we've been doing some historical research around here. Was, this is just the story of San Diego. Right. We create a ton of jobs. We do not create the homes to go along with it. And have not and we go through these cycles where that means there's tons of homeless people and then there we catch up and then we create a bunch more jobs and then we don't catch up and it continues you did a story how long ago was it when you tracked just whether homes had kept pace with jobs that was like three years ago oh, okay, right yeah, like three years and ago. and it was dramatic how different the number of homes created with the number of jobs created was and that that's that should tell the whole story right there and and it's hard for people to sink in with it.
3: But what you're saying is that even though, even with the jobs we have, the wages are not enough, right?
2: Well, but the wages are not enough. Uh, I mean, yes, yes, but also that's be the wages are not enough because the homes are so expensive because there's not there's enough not homes. Enough homes, okay. right? Yeah,
1: yeah. that like there's the rich people are going to buy homes. Yeah. It's just what's left over for people. Below that, if they do, if they don't get their own homes, uh, you know, in a high class neighborhood, they're going to move and gentrify someplace else, and that's going to push somebody else down.
2: Exactly, it, it, everyone bids up the home, just w- you know, within their reach, and that that works so that filters down as you move down. So there was another
1: study we were referencing. The Washington Post did an analysis of homes that were bought by investors in 2021 and found that 9% of the homes in the region in San Diego bought by investors, or 9% of homes sold in the region last year were bought by investors. And you were saying you dug into this one too, Andy, and that's been the case
2: for a while. Yeah, so there's some research, some uh, numbers from Altos Research, which is another one of these data tracking firms. Um and they've said basically that f- over the last decade, about ten percent of all homes that have that are part of the resale market, pl- homes that people live in, they sell them when they need to move, and they buy them when they need to when they can afford to, um, have been removed from that market and been put into the investor owned rental market. So about 10% of the inventory of of homes have been pulled out of the resale market and put into the rental market, which is another way of saying instead of people buying them to live in them, they've been bought by people to make money off of them by renting them to some other person. So that's about 10%, which is very consistent with this last year of data that The Washington Post reported on that it was 9% of homes sold last year were sold to an investor
1: and yet a lot of those weren't these sort of corporate owned things right there was a lot of people with their second or third home and it made sense with inflation
2: and mortgage rates where they were yeah so basically an investor owned home is defined as any home owned by somebody who's not living there that's how these data tracking firms track it when the this is kind of interesting when the the title of a home is registered and it's going to be sent somewhere. If the if that title is sent to an address other than the home itself, these rental these tracking firms go. Oh, aha! An investor, an investor. But that could be BlackRock Capital, this you know vulture financial firm that is, uh, you know, creating making a financial instrument out of a home, or it could be a husband and wife who had a two bedroom house. And now they're moving into a three-bedroom house. But they th- they go, oh, you know what? Our, we can still afford this other mortgage. Maybe we own two homes now. And then they just became a small-time landlord. So the investor category includes everyone from a husband and wife that own two homes, one they live in, one they rent, up to BlackRock Capital. Mm-hmm. And according to Altos Research, that investor category, which is you know give or take 10% of homes, 90% of those, 90% are owned by people who own one to four properties, which is, so virtually all of them are individual people who, are, who have become small-time landlords in the last few years.
1: Yeah, so let's step back and I think part of the reason that this matters is that there's in this discussion about what's happening to the housing market, there's always somebody who says, well, investors, these, these vulture firms are sucking it all
2: up. That's part of the problem. And certainly as a contributor, it's happening and it's not good, but that's 10% of the homes that are sold are sold to any investor and only 10% of those are going to the Black Rocks of the world. Got it.
1: Well, so is it going to get better?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the production of new homes is ticking up again. But not anywhere near enough to eat into the decades of slow home building. Mm-hmm. And so, like, by one measure, again, this is Altos Research, with an the interview they did with Bloomberg, there used to be, on a normal basis, about a million homes available in for sale inventory at the start of every year. In the country. In the country. And right now there's like 250,000 at the start of every year. So to get back to that level at the start of one year, and I'm using that as like a proxy for the market, recognizing that rental's different, but they move together. So it's 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 fair enough to talk about it this way for, for, for now. To get back to that, like something structural and dramatic has to change. And, and probably a bunch of structural and dramatic things need to change to get from, say, 250,000, inventory of homes to a million and uh, you know that's not going to happen in a year it's not going to happen in probably five years unless unless you have like a precipitating event like we had at the great recession where lots of people who had mortgages stopped having mortgages because Mm. they went underwater Um, that doesn't seem like that's going to happen right now because the loan value ratio ratio of all these mortgages is actually Better than it's ever been. And then it's with inflation, in it's
1: making the values go even faster.
2: Going faster, yeah.
1: Well, this is all part of what it costs to live in San Diego. And our reporters and you guys are on a project right now to gather all of that information. So it's very expensive to have a car in San Diego, it's very expensive to pay for utilities. A lot of people complain about power bills and water bills and such. And so we are collecting a lot of those stories. If you have any, let us know. You can email us at info at uh, We'll put up a survey soon. And I think if you're on our text messaging survey, you can get that as well. The cost of living is on everybody's mind. What are the particular stories that you have and what are you most interested in? We are following it. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in this part of San Diego. Keep up with all of our stories and insights with The Morning Report, our most popular newsletter. Get it at VOSD.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Andrew Keats and André Lopez Villafana are our managing editors. Adam Greenfield is our technician. Nate John is our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.